0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a
1: Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You're listening to a TVO podcast. Before
0: we get into our show, we'd like to ask you to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis.
2: And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Colin, I can't believe this is the first time we're in the same room It's insane, this. right? Yeah,
0: In a very tiny room at that. Very tiny. <laughs> Don't cough. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we're speaking with journalist and filmmaker Michelle Shepard, the director of The Perfect Story. Let's hear a clip.
3: This is a simple story to write. Terrace did this to him. He's an innocent boy. So for 10 years, I told the world his story. It's always like the happy refugee story. Those are the kind of stories that people want to believe, but it's more complicated than that. It's not like that.
0: The film tells the story of Ismail Abdule, a Somali refugee whose story of being imprisoned and tortured by al-Shabaab garnered international headlines and tremendous sympathy. He was eventually able to leave Somalia and traveled to Norway, where he became a citizen.
2: But there was more to Ismail's story than he originally revealed, and Shepard's film leads to a revelation neither she nor Sahal ever saw coming.
1: Shall I tell you what you want, or what's real?
3: All I want to hear is the truth.
0: Nan, this is a heavy documentary, heavy subject. What did you think of it?
2: Uh, agree. I am kind of worried about how people will receive it. Right off the bat, it grabs you emotionally. And then when this revelation comes out, it's hard not to feel a little bit of sadness because of what's lost in the story. But we don't want to give away too much, so.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, for me personally, like, the revelation is is pretty shocking. And I mean, I always sort of love documentaries that have somewhat of a twist ending. I, I don't want to, I know it's not exactly a twist ending. It's not like the sixth sense, but it does sort of give you that sort of like like a feeling like, oh, what what I've seen before is not really the whole story. And I think people are going to be surprised when they watch the film at just what's in store for them, right?
2: Yeah, and I think intent is something for listeners to keep in mind. I think that's really um, important. Like, the intent behind uh, Sahal and uh, Michelle, the reason why they did the documentary. One of the things that I'm worried about are the impacts to other people. Uh, And this is one of... This is a story that could affect a lot of other people in many different countries.
0: Definitely. Well, joining Michelle Shepard in our interview was journalist Sahal Abdullah, as you just mentioned, Nam, and he befriended Ismail in Somalia. They are of no relation, of course. Uh, their last names, it's just a coincidence. But uh, he's in the interview with us, and so is Michelle. So stay with us. Well, Michelle Shepard and Sahal Abdullah, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you for having us. Thank you, Colin.
0: Michelle, I just want to start with you first. Uh, congratulations. It's an excellent film. Um, I guess I just wonder how it feels to have it out finally.
3: Uh, you know, I, I'd love to hear from Sahal too on this. Um, it's It's been a tough film. Um, I have to, It's of course, it's, it's good to have it done and we're happy for people to see it. But um, I think it's going to create some uh, discussion again, which we're looking forward to. But um, I'm not sure how people are going to take it. And uh, you know, I'd be lying to say if I wasn't a little bit nervous um, about the what the reaction is to it. Um, we, we think we know we, we did a good film. We did the best we could in telling this story. Um, but yeah, there's a little, there's a little bit of um, nervousness to see the reaction.
2: Well, Sahal, you're joining us all the way from Mogadishu. Uh, so it's great for you to be part of this conversation. Um, just to follow up on what Michelle said, how do you feel about the film being out?
1: Well, I'm glad that it's finally out because I really, we struggled. Michelle struggled. Uh, we had so many calls, but, uh, and I think anything that's worthwhile, you have to struggle both morally and uh, and ethically. And there were so many questions, but uh, as Michelle said, we did our best. I think we, Michelle will call and I will call and I will say why would why would we start a film like this because at the beginning you do you don't know, but at the end you want to tell the story, you want it to come as clear as possible, as honest as possible. but again I mean it was one tough uh, tough film. I don't know if I would uh, go through another one like this, but at the end once I saw the film and the work that came through, I'm really happy and again, As Michelle said, it's uh, out open for discussion. We'll see how people take it.
0: Michelle, I want to pick up on just uh, what the story is about. I mean, the perfect story is basically about looking at uh, your relationship with uh, Ismail Abdul. Could you just, I guess, tell us a little bit about him?
3: Sure. Um, I met Ismail during a trip in 2010. And he came to me through a contact, another um, Canadian journalist that I knew, uh, Rashid Hashi, who had been based in Toronto, but then went back to Mogadishu and was working as the communications director for the then um, president's office. And he had told me, if you can get back to Mogadishu, you have someone I want you to meet. And around that time, there had been, um, in Toronto, there'd been a lot of stories about um, young Toronto men leaving to go join al-Shabaab, which is the group that later would go go on to join forces with Al-Qaeda. And so Hashi was writing me saying, listen, like people just don't appreciate how brutal they are. They are. Please come to Mogadishu. I have a story for you. Um, so during a trip in January 2010, I went and met him and that's when he introduced me to Ismail. And Ismail was this young at the time, 17 uh, year old, this incredibly articulate, passionate, um, <laughs> lovely young man who... Um, told me that he had been uh, on his way to to school um, and he'd been um, stopped by um, al-Shabaab. They wanted him to join them. And at the time it wasn't uncommon for young men to join, not out of some sort of religious ideology or something, but just because they were kind of the gang in town. They still had a lot of sway in Mogadishu at that point. And they um, asked him to join. He said he didn't want to, he wanted to stay in school. And so they later kidnapped him as an example to others, took him to a stadium, cut off his one of his hands, one of his feet, and then um he escaped their custody, he told me, and then found his way to the government to to my friend Abdi Rashid, and um he was telling me a story. Uh, and sort of the end of the interview at the time I, I actually was traveling around with the African Union forces. It was the only way to sort of have security for foreign journalists at that time. So I had a very short time with him, about ninety minutes. Um, and at the end, it, it was it was a really really impactful interview. I was quite moved by him and his story. And uh, in the end, you know, he kind of was asking, "Can you help me? Can you help me?" And it was really devastating. Um, so after that, I wrote, I wrote a story for the Toronto Star. On, not just on him, it was a larger story, but he was kind of the beginning of the story. And a large photo that I took of him um, ran with the headline uh, Ismail is just 17.
2: And um, Sahal Michelle mentioned that uh, she was moved by Ismail's story. You were also uh, quite invested to, with him. Unofficially, um, you adopted him. Um, can you give us a bit of context? What was happening in Somalia when those awful things happened to Ismail?
1: Well, I, uh, you know, even though I was in Somalia, I was still uh, connected with Toronto. So uh, I would read uh, uh, Toronto Star and, uh, and uh, CBC and also some uh, other uh, uh, radios in Toronto. And I saw the story and I immediately called Michelle to get some more uh, background of what, what the Ismaili's story was, because I was really a uh, but I, would, I did not get as much uh, emotional until I met him personally. As Michelle said, he's very charismatic, 17 year old, uh, very smile, very articulate at that young age. And uh, his look, his eye, uh, I think, once Michelle told me, I told Michelle, and at that time, I myself was uh, sort of the green zone, MIA, Mogadishu International Airport, so I could not venture outside of uh, the airport myself. So I threw Abdul Rashid and Michelle. Ismail came to the camp, and uh, he was, it was quite tough meeting with him because at that young age, uh, and really, really hit me so hard. But uh, after having conversation with him and what have you, I sort of trying to hold my tears. I told, told him, hey, listen, Ismail, I might not bring you the hand and the leg, but I will make sure that you get an education and uh, at least you live a comfortable life from now on. And, and I started uh, uh, uh From that day on, 24 hours thinking, and went to Nairobi, knock at all doors, to see how I can uh, save what is left of Ismail. Michelle, um,
0: after many years of effort, Esmail winds up in in Norway, and he becomes a, a citizen of Norway. He speaks fluent Norwegian. He's got a passport. Can you just, I guess, pick up the story? What happens to him when he gets to Norway?
3: Sure. So yeah, through. Sahal's incredible work, um, actually at first it wasn't long to get him to Norway. It was remarkable. Within three months, um, I remember I was back in the newsroom back in Toronto and and, and Sahal calling me says, like, you're never going to believe this. Like, great news. It's like, okay, what, what you know, Ismail's got refugee status is amazing. And I we thought at first he'd come to Canada. I was like, is he coming to Canada? No, not Canada. Um, I think we had another country. I can't remember where Sahal, but we th- we thought another country that he was going to go to. No, not that Norway. And I was like, okay, Norway, that's great. Where? And he said, well, it's Harstad. And as he's you know telling me this, I'm looking up Harstad, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's 200 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. This is great. <laughs> I've never been that north. And um, so it was kind of this this yeah this remarkable ending to what was um, a tragic beginning. And so the three of us a year after uh, we met him. Um, in January 2011 the three of us went to Norway and he settled there and as you mentioned Colin he did really really well he was in school um, the program there was wonderful he made friends he was um, he did, he's fluent in, Nor- in Norwegian and then in 2018 he actually became a citizen and in during that time he had asked me to do a documentary I was I just finished a documentary on uh, Omar Kader. Uh I screened that in Oslo I met him there and you know we started talking about doing one with him. and then we, we started filming with him. um but it was after that first filming trip in Norway where he got his citizenship that that things really quickly started to change. he um he had a really difficult time after that and I worried it was partly our filming that you know triggered a little bit of PTSD in him which understandably he would have um so we kind of put the film on hold for a while uh and then a um, eventually, and I went to see him sort of alone without cameras. Um, he he did suffer a bit of a breakdown, but, you know, he'd said he was sort of ready to keep filming, and he really wanted to get to Mogadishu. I mean, that was going to be part of the film that, you know, nearly a decade after he had left there, he'd never been able to go home again to see, you know, his, his mother and his siblings, um, and he was really eager to do that, and he wanted us to come along and film. And I don't know how much further you want me to go into the film or what happened, but it was you know, after that trip that we took together um, to Mogadishu and and Sahal was there as well, um, that things really started to change and um, everything changed, you know, in Ismail's life, but but also in where the film went from there. When um, Ismail was in
2: Norway, did you have a lot of contact with him? Did he open up to you about what he was going through there?
1: Uh, Yes, I... He opened it up. In fact, the way he, at the beginning, we were not thinking of the film, but Michelle, I think, wanted to do a story. But uh, the reason I ended up going to Norway, uh, he came to me like a day before and said, So, how it feels like the day I was being taken to that awful place to get amputated? And I said, Why smile? And, and he goes, I don't speak Norwegian, I don't speak English, and I don't know where I'm going. So he had that sort of the look was a bit, uh, bit. so I rang Michelle and said, Michelle, uh, the look that I saw Ismail, and I felt a bit responsible for him. I said, Ismail, without telling him, I will try to, since you come to Kenya, did you, had any issues like any problem he said no and I said I promise things will will get even better when you get to Norway it was quite uh, quite an interesting and at the same time uh, tough because I knew he will be safe there I knew he would get the education that he will not uh, gonna get and that's what we were trying by our preference it was... Uh, that he goes to Canada because we have that connection with Canada and we thought he will have a lot of friends and what have you. But Norway came and we, I was going like Michelle, it is better than him going back to Mogadishu. And at least he, the Nordic, uh, with that culture of openness and what have you, he will be in a good position. So all, all that dilemma came up and down.
0: Well, Michelle, one of the big themes in the story is just about, is journalistic ethics, uh, especially considering um, given your relationship, how did being close to him affect you?
3: Yeah, it's it's been. I mean, that's been one of the the toughest parts about the film. And 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 when I said earlier that you know there's some stress in, in terms of how it's going to be accepted, that is primarily our main concern is for Ismail and how people and will perceive him. And I hope they perceive him in a good light. But the second concern is sort of about journalism, and we're in a r- rather fraught time right now in terms of journalism. And there's, you know, great distrust in the press and, um, you know, cries of fake media, etc. Um, So, yeah, this this did, this story and this film confronted a lot of different issues that I, I think I'm still thinking about today and still asking various questions. But in terms of our relationship and you know, friendship, I'd call it, we had a friendship too. We we stayed in touch um, as did Sahal over the years. Um, that's one of those things that you were taught in journalism school uh, not to do. <laughs> you know, I went to journalism school, gosh, like 20, 26, <laughs> more than two decades ago now. Um, and, you know, that was sort of one of the sacrosanct rules that you don't, you don't befriend those that you write about. Um, you don't put yourself in the story. Um, you don't become part of the story. So I've broken all those rules with this, not um, on purpose, but, but it was just, you know, how could you not stay in touch? It was sort of a, I, I felt very vested in his, in his future and, and what would happen. But, you know, as I, I understand why there are problems with that, because that, that friendship does sort of make it a bit murkier. And I think um, both in terms of my perspective and, and the, what you're, what you're, supposed to do as a journalist, but also for his, I mean, it was interesting. And again, we're getting close to, you know, spoiling the turn in the movie, but it was interesting at one point, you know, he kind of, I believe it's in the film where he says, you know, what what do you want? What do you want me to say? Do you want me to say what you want me to hear? And I thought, oh gosh, like how often has he had to do that over the years that he kind of is trying to, in a way, sort of please me. And I'm asking for a story that is going to please me. Um, so that that was one of the journalism lessons I kind of learned through this. Um, that again, but when I say that, would that happen again? I'm not sure because um you it's some stories are just impossible not to stay in touch with people. You make those human connections. And certainly when you make a film, more so than say da- daily journalism, you spend months with people. um so to to then cut that off after feels really unnatural and um cruel to some degree. Um, and then just quickly, the other kind of um, lesson that I, th- I think I knew before, I did know before doing this film, but it really brought it home, was this idea of purely objective journalism. And again, what we were sort of taught in journalism school. And I think that's shifting in ways that are both good and bad. Um, in so far as the ways that they're shifting in which I think it's a positive thing is that I think it's okay that journalists are starting to bring a bit of their authority to certain subjects. And And I know for me, when I covered you know, national security beat for so many years, I think that was okay, especially near, you know, the end of my career at the Star that I was, it was informed journalism, you know, if, if there's something coming out of the Pentagon, that's a lie, you can say that, Um, you know, if you can, you can challenge that in a way, um, there's not always two sides to every story. Um, So that's, Anyway, that's one of the that's one of, was one of the ethical concerns that came out of this. Um, so I'm just going to give
2: uh, listeners the opportunity to kind of, to turn off or pause the the podcast if they haven't watched it because this is going to be the part where we do um, reveal the twist. Um, Michelle, the documentary is called "The Perfect Story," but as we get into it, it seems as if there are cracks forming. What did you learn about Ismail's story that you didn't know before?
3: Yeah, well that that's what ended up happening and I, you know, as I mentioned things sort of started to change after he'd gone to Mogadishu but you know I think as Sahal was alluding to even before that we knew something was was not quite right with him. When he came back to, from Mogadishu he said, you know, I think we have to talk, maybe the film is off, um I have to tell you something. So a lot of this happened at first off camera um where he said he. We met him in Amsterdam on his way home from Mogadishu before flying back to Norway, where we intended to film. And he said, "You know, I haven't. I didn't tell you the truth ten years ago."
2: Your heart must have gone into your throat. Like your body must have had a physical reaction.
3: Yeah, it it, it did. I mean, I think I actually, if I remember correctly, I, I, after we talked for quite some time, I actually was quite I was quite teary. Um, but it wasn't at that point. It wasn't about the journalism. I I really didn't. Um. I don't want to say I didn't care because, of course, as you said, it's it's um, devastating to know that you printed something that wasn't accurate and you then have to correct the record. But my first concern was for him. You could cl- clearly see that he had struggled with coming to to tell us this, and it, looking back, once I knew what he said, he'd struggled for all those years. And you know, just just quickly, what the the what he told us that wasn't exactly true, was the narrative that led up to him being kidnapped, taken to a stadium, having his hand and foot cut off. Obviously that did happen to him. And at the time we knew it was Shabab. There was reports of it, there were photos. I mean, we we documented that, but he hadn't been wanting to stay in school. What he told us was that he had actually been in the, the market Bakara market in Mogadishu, he had been um, trying to steal money from people. He had a, a gun and two members of the Shabab who knew one of his brothers came up and said, um, hey, can I see the gun? He said, sure, handed it over. They turned it on him and said, now you're a thief. And under Sharia law, you must be punished. Um, and then took him to the to stadium. The rest was true. It's what happened to him. The other part of the story that he said wasn't true was that when he had told us he had escaped, in fact, the Shabab had kept him for a time and returned him home. So, I obviously I knew right away that we had to we had to correct the record, and um, we're doing so, you know, in the Toronto Star as well as through this film. Toronto Star was where it was fu- first published. Um, but, my as you can imagine, there were just so many thoughts that came after that, and really, there was a lot of. Um, I wasn't mad at him at all. I mean, I, I was, I didn't, uh, I didn't feel duped. I just felt very sad for him. I felt sad that he had the savviness, frankly, um, all those years ago at such a young age to, to know that the public may not have sympathy for him if he told the whole story. And that made me sad because he's probably right. Um, I absolutely would have still written the story about him. It's barbaric what happened to him, but would the reaction have been the same? if it hadn't been a tidy narrative, if he had been, you know, instead portrayed as sort of a young thief and this had happened to him, I'm not sure it would have been. So that was, that just made me sad that he, he knew that and he had to concoct that story. But then my role came into it insofar as once I told that story, you know, the quote unquote, the perfect story, he had to keep telling it over and over and over because the story um, really, you know, rippled out. Uh, other media covered it. And then in Norway, he was kind of a minor celebrity there. Um, and he just had to keep going with it. And I guess it was, you know, the weight of making this film and whatever epiphany he had kind of in Mogadishu that he just bravely came forward and said, I can't keep doing this. Um, and this is the perspective that I hope. This is where I say, when I said, you know, I, I'm... We're all nervous, um, Sahal as well. We've had this conversation many times. Obviously, you can't control what the public is going to think, but but there's that nervousness because we live in quite a divided world, and you know, a xenophobic world, and one where there is just great distrust of the media. So I, I hope that people will see the film put into perspective and and not cast judgment, sort of on on what happened.
0: Sahal, what was your reaction to hearing Ismail's true story?
1: Well, I I was uh, devastated, uh, but not uh, as much as uh, I felt very sad as Michelle said for him and also very sad for Michelle because uh, her name, the star, uh, the audience of that, uh, my involvement was not as a journalist, my my involvement was saving this little kid, but Still, I was devastated because we we ran, we advocated for that story, and he convinced us, and uh, no matter what, if anybody told me anything but what Ismail told, told me, I would, uh, I would not open to listen to. But, uh, so when we hear that, you look... Because by the time I we, I hear the story, I have sort of developed uh, sort of father figure for him, and uh, it 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 was quite sad. Uh, would I help with him if it was that? Of course, if he's 17 years old. That time he didn't make it; it's a mistake. A thief in Mogadishu and what have you. But at the same time, he didn't deserve to lose both limbs. Uh, that. So it, I mean, it was a moral dilemma because in journalism school, you are trained to be the observer, not uh, participant. And then you tell the story that you observed and what you observed, it's, it turned out to be opposite of what you have been telling for 10 years. I mean, you will get devastated.
2: I think for me, watching, um When the twist happened, I had to pause it for a little bit. My family came here as refugees, and I lived in a refugee camp when I was um, a young child. And you mentioned, Michelle, that people are xenophobic. There are a lot of uh, refugees who are telling the truth about why they're not safe in their countries, why they need to flee. Does it worry you that the story might make people... Doubt the stories of refugees or increase the stigma about refugees t- telling the truth of why they're leaving their countries
3: absolutely. I mean, that's that's when i when I mentioned we live in a xenophobic um world, of course. I mean, anything that would provide fodder towards, you know, racist comments that say all refugees lie, take a look at this. I just um will hope that people will keep that in perspective. And um, but that's that that is one of that is why it's been such a, a tough film because, um, you know, once we got into it and he, you know, he was the one who bravely came forward and corrected the record, really. I mean, that's the other thing to keep in mind that for this isn't a case of somebody, you know, uncovering, um, something myself uncovering or Sahal uncovering or somebody in the public bringing forth information that shows he had told a lie, he decided to come forward. So for 12 years, nobody had had doubted any aspects or any of the details of his stories. And, um, and that we would have carried on with the film. Um, you know, not a different film um, that would have had a much happier ending, I'm sure, um, where he would just continue the narrative. Um, so it's, it's a really unique case, but, but once he had told us that, you know, it is our duty journalism wise to correct it. But yes, of course, those are my, those are my concerns that, um, in telling, I, in telling the story that it will help give fodder to some of the most divisive, you know, threads that are running through society right now.
0: Kind of have to wrap up our conversation, but I, I want to ask, you know, it, you both this question, uh, you know, you wouldn't be the first journalist to have been lied to by a source. I mean, I'm thinking of the New York times Caliphate podcast. Anyone can Google that story and find out what happened there if they're curious. But I'm wondering just as journalists, you know, what your advice would be to, uh, reporters, especially ones who are in conflict zones reporting, uh, how, how do they approach sources like Ismail in the future? What what would your advice be to them?
3: Again, it's a huge conversation that we've had so many, so many talks about, um, because, it's always the journalist's position to challenge authority and um, especially on the national security beat. Uh, there's been devastating uh, stories, lies that have been told in the paper uh, or in any media um, that have led us into war. I mean, we've had the concept of weapons, mass destruction led us into war. And that was um, a story that was carried by reputable sources. So I, I think over the years, um, having that, the, being skeptical of of any source, any story you are told, you have to come to it with some skepticism and you have to push back and you have to document as best you can. But ironically for me, those stories have been, I think I have done that over the years and my, my record sort of shows that, but those have been people in positions of power. When you're in a conflict zone and you're dealing with victims of trauma, um, you have a different responsibility. I mean, it's, it's, Already kind of uncomfortable and difficult to go in, especially as a foreign correspondent, and ask people to tell you about their most traumatic moments, so that you can get people in a Western audience to care about a conflict you know miles away. Um, I always took that job with some humility. I always tried to not um, re-traumatize someone in asking for um, details of their stories. So I wouldn't want this to serve as an example of the fact that you have to interrogate those that have been through horrible instances to make sure they're not (laughs) lying to you. Um, But again, you know, what we were trying to get at the film and what I hope this, this, you know, story in this film, the discussion it provokes is, you know, are we sometimes bringing with us a lens that we're looking for the perfect story? You know, were there ways in which I asked didn't ask some questions that could be asked in a gentle way to try and better document what someone is telling me? Um, and, you know, again, you're asking about what journalists can do differently. Um, I'm, I'm not sure looking back, there's much I could have done differently in this case. Um, Sahal, I'd love to hear your answer on this, too, because, I, you know, the only, if I recall correctly, and we're going back many years, you know, the only people that were disputing his tale at the time were al-Shabaab. And, I mean, ironically, they were the ones who said, no, he was a thief. Um, but, of course, we know that, you know, they had put out much propaganda before. And, in fact, I'd done stories that had debunked their propaganda before. So I'm I'm not sure... What we could have done differently um, in those circumstances, but Sahal, do you have anything to add that you think, you know, in this story or journalists writ large, we have you know fallen down on?
1: I, I mean, uh, it, it is really quite uh, quite a difficult area because when you are in a conflict zone and you are dealing with victims, uh, in a, as a human being, you will have that sort of. Uh, uh feeling that you will you will interrogate you will ask the question softly not like as Michelle said with the authority uh but even the victims but gently and I think Michelle myself with dinner with uh, I mean uh, with airplanes we interrogated Ismail but uh, in so many ways but it never came out out of those 12 years and I sort of respect him because this is, he could have kept quiet and we might not even find the truth. But 12 years later, I think it took a lot of bravery for, for even him to come out. So what do you advise uh, to journalists who are in the field to avoid a dilemma like this? I mean, do the interrogation uh, over and over and over again, but at the same time, don't lose that humanity, that sensitivity this person went through uh, difficult day. I mean, when you're dealing with authority, it is a different case, uh, but at the same time, take it with, uh, be cautious, be cautious. Even uh, there is a Somali, Somali saying, like if you see somebody who is bleeding, uh, they were running to you with a knife wound careful taking their story wholeheartedly because he might left somebody dead behind. So I would I say question it with uh, huma- humility.
2: And I'm going to try to sneak in one more question because um, you both mentioned that um, Ismail came and told the truth because if he hadn't told the truth, I don't know anyone would have known. Do we know why he told the truth? He decided to come forward. Did he ever share that with either one of you?
3: I th- I think he's had a little trouble articulating it. Um, and I don't, I don't, I think that's just because I'm not sure he necessarily knows. I don't want to put any words in his mouth, but I know that is a question I think you still have when you watch the film. We didn't answer that question because he, he couldn't at that time. Um, you know, I think he, um, whatever happened in Mogadishu, I think he just couldn't continue telling it. Um, I don't know if, Sahal, you had any further conversations where he could articulate it better, but I, I'm, I'm still not certain, except that he was just weary of it.
1: I mean, we, both of us, I think, had the same conversation, and I had a conversation uh, in that regard, privately with him, and I think with him, he was also having a dilemma uh, of let's say if he doesn't correct the record, it was eating inside him. And um, I asked it a few times and said, "Ismail, you know the implication of what you just told us? And I said, yes, I know, but uh, I can sleep now better. So it tells me that he was struggling with it for all those uh, years with himself.
2: And I think the why doesn't change anything, as you said, Michelle, because he still was tortured and suffered a great injustice. Um, Sahal and Michelle, thank you so much for making time to speak to us. This documentary will have a lot of people talking for a very long time. Thank you so much for um, sharing your insights with us.
3: Thank you, Nam and Colin. This was uh, quite an interesting uh, conversation. Thank you, Nam and Colin. Thank you.
0: And that's the podcast. The Perfect Story airs on TVO on October 18th at 9 PM and will stream on TVO.org.
2: If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners to find the show. This
0: episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Special thanks to our production support coordinators, Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Halliwell.
2: Our manager for podcasts is Shari Artajvidi and our executive producer for digital is Lori Few.
0: Thanks for listening and we'll catch you at the next screening.